Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down this week with Dan Rather, by any measure an iconic figure in the history of broadcast journalism. His own rich story and the remarkable history he's covered over nearly 70 years as a journalist could fill 10 podcasts. And the amazing thing is he's still at it today, a huge presence on social media. He still does shows on cable and podcasts and writes books, including his most recent, What Unites Us, which is a welcome tonic in these divisive and turbulent times, an inspiring work. So here's my conversation with Dan Rather. Dan Rather, what a pleasure uh, to be with you. Seven, you're in your seventh decade here as a practicing journalist. That is an extraordinary thing. And you have an amazing perspective on how the media has changed, how the country has changed, how it's not. I want to get into all of that. But first, I, I, I want to ask you a little bit about your, your, your journey from uh, Wharton, Texas, to this moment and the lessons that you've learned there. So first of all, welcome. Thank you very much, David. And it's good to see you. Good to be with you. And I really appreciate this opportunity to visit with you. Thank you. So tell me about that. You, you were born in East Texas. You, that, you, you quickly moved to Houston, but uh, in, the, in the midst of the Depression. Um, and tell me what what life was like for you, what your, your, uh, tell me about your folks, uh, and, um, and how young Dan rather, uh, got along. Well, I was born in Wharton, Texas, which is not so much in East Texas it's on the Texas coast, about 50 miles oh, below, okay. below Houston. And, uh, it was an accident of birth. My father was a pipeliner, which is to say he dug ditches for the laying of oil and gas pipelines. He worked with his back and his hands. And uh, they were laying a pipeline from the South Texas oil fields to Houston and New Orleans, and he was digging the ditches. And they would dig the ditches for a while from one town and then another. So they worked their way from Victoria to El Campo uh, to Edna and then founded Wharton. So I was born in Wharton. I have no early memories of Wharton because the pipeline moved on and we eventually when I was a year and a half old, moved to the outskirts of Houston. Houston was not nearly the big city it is today. It was a, a big town, but not yet a big city. Uh-huh. So I grew up basically on the edges of Houston. I grew up in a neighborhood called the Houston Heights, which uh, when we lived there, was what the sociologists now would call a transition neighborhood, which is to say it was a tough neighborhood. Uh, in which very few people had meaningful work. My father was one of the few people for miles around that actually had uh, a job. 
But both my parents uh, worked. Uh, my father worked with his back and his hands for most of his life. He became an electrician a little, a little later on with home study. Uh, but, you know, fortunately for me, although it was uh, by anybody's measurement uh, at the neighborhood was the Houston Heights was at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. That that old cliche applies that, you know, we never thought we were poor because we had more than most of the people around uh-huh. us. And I went to Houston public schools uh, all the way through and then uh, wound up going to college at Sam Houston State Teachers College in Huntsville, Texas, which is deep in East Texas. Uh, that my parents, neither of my parents uh, had finished high school. This sounds unusual now, but in their time and place, yeah. in fact, in many places in America during the early and mid-1930s, this was not unusual, uh, that neither of them had finished high school, but they were voracious newspaper readers. Uh, we, they took the newspapers, they read the newspapers, they discussed the newspapers. And I think what happened, David, is that somewhere along the way uh, in my early you know, four, five, six years old, I began to think newspapers must be must be important because my parents spend so much time with them. Uh-huh. But I can say, for whatever the reason, that my earliest memories are of wanting to be a reporter. The word journalist was not in right, common of usage. Yeah. Uh, a journalist was a reporter with a cane. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <somewhere> <laughs> But I, I, you know, I, I always said I wanted to be a reporter when we played those kids' games of what do you want to be when you grow up? Somebody wanted to be an airplane pilot. Somebody wanted to be an um, Army general or something. I always said I want to be a reporter. Before I really knew what a reporter was, I wanted to be one. Your folks also uh, were committed uh, FDR Democrats. So news wasn't just that they were reading news, that they were engaged in what was going on. Oh, no, absolutely. And they were, uh, you know, they, my father particularly held, uh, perhaps unfairly, but nonetheless, he held uh, Herbert Hoover responsible for not responding to the economic depression. And uh, they, both both my my parents were were big for FDR because they perceived that FDR uh, was number one for the working person. Uh, and number two, uh, that perhaps he could save the country, which I would submit that indeed he did. But they discussed politics. It wasn't just they perused the newspapers. They, re- they read the editorials and they talked among themselves. And when uh, Hitler began to raise, I-, I have an early memory that they heard about Mein Kampf, the Hitler book, Mein Kampf, and it was uh, getting into translation. And uh, they actually got a copy from the library from the Houston Public Library of Moncom. And my father and his younger brother, Michael John, and my mother, uh, they read it and they discussed it. And this was in the period of 1937, 38, 39 through there. I know also you, you were ill as a child. You had rheumatic fever when you were a kid. Spent a lot of time listening to the radio uh, and some of the great broadcast uh, journalists uh, of that time. Well, that is true, that I contracted uh, rheumatic fever. It was a long time being diagnosed as that. And so beginning in when I was about uh, 10 and three quarters, 11 years old until I was almost 14, 
I spent long periods uh, in it confined to bed. At the time, there was no known cure for rheumatic fever. It was every mother's nightmare, second only to polio, was a great fear. Uh, and so I was in bed for almost one full year at one stretch and then another time for the better part of a year that uh, there was no known cure. And the doctor, what the fear was, it, it starts in your lower extremities, in your feet, in your ankles, and works its way up. And the fear was uh, it gets to your heart and it gives you heart trouble for the rest of your life and can be fatal. So what the doctor said is put him to bed, let him move as little as possible, and we might be able to avoid heart trouble. Well, that's a tough thing for an 11-year-old kid. Well, the short answer to that is yes. Uh, it was a very difficult period. I was not able to attend school. and I was alone a lot. But the point is, being alone, the radio was my constant companion. And two things in the radio just mesmerized me. One was the news, because my having rheumatic fever corresponded roughly with the beginning of World War II for the United States the attack on Pearl Harbor. And I heard all the famous broadcasters, Ed Murrow, uh, Charles Collingwood, Eric Severide, reporting, you know, from faraway places with strange-sounding names. And for me, bedridden as I was, living this great life of of purpose and, and uh, mission uh, and adventure. Uh, the other thing was play-by-play radio baseball. Mm-hmm. I listened to it constantly. Uh, Houston was not yet a major league team. We were a farm club of the St. Louis Cardinals, and the Cardinals were our major league team. So we would pick up powerful radio stations like KMOX in St. Louis with play-by-play of the Cardinal games. If you'd been able to get W, I think it's WHO from Des Moines, isn't that what it is? You you could have heard Ronald Reagan uh, uh <laughs> Calling games. Uh, That's true. Yeah. Uh, but uh, looking back on it, it was probably among the most formative things of my early life, maybe the single most formative thing. Because uh, at that early age, you have to, you know, you've got a lot of time to think, maybe too much time to think. But one of the things that you thought of all the time was if I ever get up from this bed, boy, I'm going to make every minute count. I'm really going to, you know, I'm not going to waste any time. Uh, But it was a formative time in my life, the time I was bedridden with rheumatic fever, no question about it. Yeah. Your folks, you you said they they never finished high school. They must have been proud when you went off to college. That must have been a big deal for them and your family. Well, it it was a huge thing for my mother. I'm the eldest of three. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. And among other things, my mother realized that in my time, a college education was going to be particularly valuable. And also, and she would say so, and she would say to me, you know, Dan, if I can just get you in college and get you through college, then that will encourage your brother and sister and make it easier for them to go. My father, uh, frankly, he didn't quite understand. He didn't... He, he didn't understand what college or university was really. And he wasn't opposed to my going, but he wasn't absolutely sure that it was uh, imperative that I go. But acceding to my mother uh, wished for me to go, his view was that I should train to be uh, an an engineer. Mm -hmm. Because for him, uh, 
you know, this is what we would call uh, institute boys, which is to say university people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was the only thing worth studying. Unfortunately, I was terrible in math, and I had no interest in it. But I wound up going to this small teacher's college. and uh, It's now a big state university, St. Yeah. Houston State University. But at the time I went there, it was a small teacher's college. Uh, I think I had 900 students when I started. And I went there uh, hoping against hope that I could get a football scholarship. I played high school football at a fairly, well, at the highest high school level in Texas, which, as you know, is yeah, big a, a time. Secular, secular religion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, I, I, I went, the, by the way, the tuition at Sam Houston State Teachers College, this uh, started in midterm 1950. What would you guess the full tuition for the semester was? I can't even imagine, but not much. $37.50. Yeah, I would have said 50, so I would have been over. <laughs> you know, that's amazing. And you studied journalism there. I did. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, the, the late Hugh Cunningham was a fairly new journalism professor. They had not had journalism for very long. Uh, but uh, he was the journalism professor. And uh, he was just terrific to me. Uh, he's now long gone, but he recognized my situation which was uh, I was barely able with my mother cashing in an old World War II bond to pay the tuition. I had no way to support myself in college. Once it was clear I wasn't going to get the football scholarship. So Hugh Cunningham, the journalism professor, took me under his wing. I actually slept uh, in the living room of his home for a short while while he got me a series of part-time jobs that allowed me to stay in college. And he mentored me and taught me uh, the three and a half years I was at Sam Houston. Also called some games when you were there, huh? <laughs> yes. Well, uh, after the football scholarship, the dreams of the scholarship fell away. I wound up among the jobs that Hugh Cunningham arranged me to get was a part-time job at the local radio station. Now, remember, Huntsville's whole population is about 2,500. That includes 900 students. The radio station was a 250 watt. That's a, that's the smallest radio station allowed over the regular channels. But uh, working at that radio station turned out to be a big break for me. Yeah, and calling games actually is probably a very good training because you you got to be quick. You have to react to events. You have to be able to speak clearly, describe what's going on. That that must have been good fundamentals for you moving forward. Well, that's very perceptive, David, because, in fact, it was very important that the play-by-play sports work that I did at this small, out-of-the-way radio station made of me. I have many weaknesses as a broadcaster and as a journalist, but one of my strengths was always I was a good ad-libber. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like election night or some breaking news where you don't have a script, you can just hold air. Because uh, at that little radio station in Huntsville, that 250-watt radio station, during football season, for example, I would do four games a week. I would do the, uh, it was a segregated society at that time. I would do the African-American, the black high school games on uh, one night. I would do the white high school games another night. I would do the college games on Saturday, 
And then when they had uh, B-team games, I would do those as well. And what this allowed me to do, and I know I don't want to lose our, our listeners here back <laughs> in the weeds, but when you do a lot of play-by-play work, there is no script. Right. And after I graduated from college, after I left that small radio station, I did, really didn't know it, but I was already a very strong ad-libber. Yeah. I could, I could hold air and make some sense of it. So after a brief stint in the Marine Corps, I have one of the shortest and least distinguished records in the whole history of the Marines. You, uh, you enlisted in the Marines uh, during the Korean War. And you, you know, for all of your uh, penchant for sharing facts and telling the truth, you weren't exactly truthful to the Marines, were you, about your past medical record? No, and I'm not, you know, I'm not proud of that. But the fact of the matter is... Well, I mean, I, I have to say, I ex- you can be excused for lying to serve your country is, is basically what you did. You, you, you wanted in. Well, I did want in. Rheumatic, having had rheumatic fever was a so-called disqualifying disease uh, that you were not supposed to be in the military if you'd had rheumatic fever. And when they ask you when you apply for the service, I was 4F in the draft. We had a draft at that time. I was not eligible to be. So when I volunteered for the Marines, they, they have a, a box you're supposed to check. Have you ever had this or that? When it came to rheumatic fever, I had had rheumatic fever, but I didn't check the box. So in effect, I lied to them. But it may seem strange here as we enter soon the third decade of the 21st century. But at that time, David, I felt it was my responsibility to go. I had played high school football and was strong. And frankly, my fear was that the Korean War would come and go and I would not have volunteered because my mother wanted me to finish college. So I went to college in the summers to get through in three years, and I did volunteer in the Marines. Once I got in and they eventually found out that I indeed had had rheumatic fever, then they sent me right out. So that's the reason I say I have a very short and undistinguished career in the Marines. Yeah, but that uh, opened the door to a very long and distinguished career in journalism. You, you headed back to Houston. You got a job. I love this part of your biography. You, you, you got a job. You want to work for the Houston Chronicle. You got a job at the Houston Chronicle, and you failed for being a poor speller. And they sent you to the radio station. Well, is that, the, is that a true story? That's an absolute true story that, you know, my dream, although I'd listened to great broadcasters, my dream was always to be a big byline reporter for the Houston Chronicle or the Houston Post. That was as far as my dream could carry. But I was then and have been ever since and am now a remarkably poor speller, (laughs) which is a tough vulnerability to have if you want to be a newspaper reporter. I'll tell you why I love that. I love the idea that one of the uh, one of the legendary broadcast journalists of our time may never have made it there, but for the fact that he couldn't spell. <laughs> That's very true. Uh, that the city editor, a guy named uh, Cobb, Dan Cobb, took me aside and said, Dan, you, you're never going to make it in newspaper. You spend too much time over the dictionary. And uh, he knew that I'd worked at the radio station in Huntsville College. So the newspaper owned a radio station, and he sent me to the radio station. And fortunately, at the radio station, uh, they put me on. And that began a career in radio, which, of course, eventually led to a career in television. Your rise was uh, meteoric, and uh, you became, I guess, the 
the, the news director at, at the age of what, 25 or something. Uh, yes. But uh, I, one other story that I uh, liked, and it speaks to who you are as a, as a reporter, uh, was the story of you hitchhiking up to Lyndon Johnson's ranch uh, to uh, cover a press conference. He was a Senate majority leader then, thought <laughs> to be a future candidate for president. He had his press conference, and you uh, tried to finagle his phone to, uh, to call in your story. He didn't, he didn't cotton to that, did he? To say the least, he didn't. <laughs> That's true. That Lyndon Johnson, uh, we were at his ranch. I'd never been to his ranch before. And I, I needed to call back to the radio station. Remember, there are no cell phones. And it was, it was a small office there with a phone in it. And so I just got into the office to make a quick call to my station back in Houston. And uh, Lyndon Johnson himself passed by, looked in the door, saw me on his telephone and ripped the telephone out of my hands with my boss in Houston at the other end. And he said, in effect, this is almost a direct quote, I don't know who this young pissant is on my phone, but whoever he is, he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about and hung up. (laughs) And thus began a beautiful relationship. (laughs) We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You made the move over to television in the late 50s. You covered uh, Hurricane Carlo, which was one of the legendary storms in history. Uh, uh, dramatically change yourself to a tree or something to keep from blowing away, as you, uh, as you reported, uh, and caught the, uh, caught the eye of CBS News. Um, that, so, uh, so by 1962, you were, uh, the bureau chief for CBS news in, in, uh, in Dallas in their Southwest bureau. That's for a guy who listened to Murrow, who was a CBS, uh, man and Severide and so on. That must've been an incredible thing. Well, it was an incredible thing that in my dreams, but only in my dreams, I could see myself say someday maybe working for CBS News, but it was such a distant dream that I didn't think of it very often. And when the hurricane came in, and the great hurricane Carla, which was the largest hurricane on record at that time, and I think still the largest hurricane in the Gulf, which caught the eye of CBS. When CBS News hired me as a correspondent, when I first came to work in 1962, I walked with legends of uh, Severide, Collingwood, the Murrow boys were still there. Ed Murrow had just left, but was around and I knew him. But I realized, David, that if I was going to make it at CBS News, I had to raise my game a lot. In the arrogance of youth, I thought I was a pretty good reporter and I could write some. Couldn't spell with a damn, but I could write. But when I got to CBS News and saw the level of talent and the ability and experience there that I realized I had to raise my game. And it is true that I was in Dallas, well, as a consequence of having been, had the Southern and Southwest Bureau, I was put in charge of the coverage of President Kennedy's trip to Dallas in 1963. So I took myself off of covering Dr. Martin Luther King, which I'd been spending a good deal of time doing, and was in Dallas at the time of the assassination. 
Yeah, be, before we talk about that, because that was obviously a, uh, it was not only a watershed event and a dreadful one in the history of our country, but it was also a watershed event in your career. But before we talk about that, talk to me for a few minutes about covering not just Dr. King, but the civil rights movement. Uh, you talked about coming from a segregated society, and here you are now on the front lines covering the civil rights movement. How did you how did that impact on you, and how did you receive that? Well, to put it directly, David, covering Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement in the early 1960s, as I did, coming as I had from a state which had institutionalized racism itself, Texas, change, covering Dr. King and the civil rights movement changed me as a person, and it changed me as a profession, that I had... I had never seen anything close to the to the violence and really deep-seated hate to which I was exposed when I began covering Dr. King and the civil rights movement. And it's sometimes hard to explain. I mean, Texas had institutionalized racism, make no mistake about it, deeply segregated. But I had not seen, for example, I'd heard about the Ku Klux Klan, but I'd never seen a Klan rally until I got began covering for CBS News. And I had never seen the kind of straight-out violence, sometimes lethal violence, uh, that was perpetrated on people of color by the power structure of the Deep South at that time. It was just, it was a revelation to me, a shock to me. As I say, it changed me as a person forever and changed me as a profession. After Medgar Evers, the uh, civil rights leader, the NAACP leader in uh, Mississippi, was assassinated, you went to uh, Jackson and you, you wrote about this. You said there, been, there may have been white people in Jackson who would have told me this was terrible, that we needed to get to the bottom of it, that we needed to change our ways. But if those people were there, I didn't find them. Yeah, for, for a young guy who grew up in the South, that must have been life-changing. Well, it was life-changing. When I say I was disturbed by it, you know, I had conversations with my own conscience about along the lines of, quite frankly, where have I been? I mean... Woke is a sort of a common word now, woke, but it's very difficult to, to explain. But coming out of Texas, as I did, certainly racial segregation had been a fact of life for me ever since I'd been born. But just to see the, the, the level of hate, and for example, uh, it was inconceivable to me that given the kinds of things that were happening, such as the assassination of Medgar Evers, a black man who was doing great work trying to get more African-Americans to vote. He was shot to death by a cowardly assassin in the grass across the street from your home in front of his wife and children, and that almost nobody spoke up about it. I mean, where are the people who go to church every Sunday? I mean, these are the kinds of thoughts I was having at the time. Surely not everybody agrees with this, but, you know, as one learned, the situation was that there were a lot of, there were some people who were concerned about it, but they didn't speak up partly out of fear, partly out of it would cost them something. Looking back, you know, we're in another era in which, uh, you know, consciences have been, uh, have been challenged uh, by what we've seen. And uh, how, much, how much progress have we made since those days when you were covering the movement in the early 60s? Well, it's a question I consider from time to time, and frankly, I try to remind myself to consider it. 
in some ways, we've made remarkable progress. The kind of progress that when I was covering the civil rights movement in early 1962, and you know how reporters are, we get around after midnight over perhaps an adult beverage. Uh, or two, yes. Of the day. <laughs> uh, that we had conversation about, for example, I can remember several times when we said, do we, do we think a, a, a black person can, can ever be a governor of a southern state? Or do we think a black person could ever be a congressman? Mm-hmm. And the general... I would say overwhelming belief was, well, not in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody would even discuss the possibility of a person of color becoming president of the United States. Right. So, you know, and now we've had Barack Obama not only was elected president, but he was reelected president. But he left for two terms. So, for example, that's a measurement. We've made a lot of progress. On the other hand, a lot of the basic problems remain the same. So, again, to use a cliche, is the is the glass half full or half empty? I think half's a little much. The effect of the matter is that we have deep and abiding racial problems in the country, many of which we just have not addressed. Mm-hmm. But have we come a long way since the early 60s and Martin Luther King's time? Yes. Do we have a very long way still to go? A resounding yes. As I said, you, you were very prominent in the coverage of the, of the Kennedy assassination. It's the thing that Americans who follow broadcast journalism, that's, what, that, that's their first big memory of Dan, Dan Rather. You've said that uh, you didn't really have time during that a period to contemplate the magnitude of what had happened because you were just covering it. Um, just what, what, what's your, what, what is your, what are your recollections of that moment? I know you, you, you didn't even know at first that the, pre- you saw the president's limousine heading in a different direction. You didn't know why got back to the office and found out what happened. And then, then what, what did you do? Well, first of all, it, it all happened very quickly. Realization the president has been, someone has taken a shot at the president. Not only did they take a shot at him, he was hit, he was wounded, perhaps fatally. Then quickly we confirmed that he was indeed dead. This was an enormous, you know, a, a, a sledgehammer, emotional sledgehammer to the heart. And on a personal level, uh, I was frankly shaken by it. And there is that moment, and reporters who, who cover big news such as this, it's, it's a common thing to have happened. There's a moment in which you can go one of two ways. You're either going to steady yourself by pushing down your own emotions, your own thoughts about, your own personal feelings about the story, and just push them so far down that you can concentrate on the story, or you're going to kind of lose it and not be able to function as you should as a pro. And I can remember that moment, saying to myself, well, you know, one of my father's favorite words was steady, and to say steady, 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 get hold. And then you realize that you have to be trying to be at or near your best. Because, David, you know very well with reporters that 
Every reporter's prayer, whether he or she will admit it or not, every reporter's prayer is, God, give me the big story. Absolutely. And then behind that, because we're greedy, there is an, oh, by the way, Lord, if you do give me the big story, could you please let me be at or near my best uh, Mm -hmm. on that day? Yeah. But when the Kennedy assassination, it, once I was able to study myself, and it took a few minutes to kind of absorb things and study myself, then you get you get what tennis players call zoned. You just everything else disappears from your head. I called my wife very briefly and said, "You know, I love you. Take care of the kids. This is going to be uh, a really important thing to do." And then you go about the work. As a result of that. Through the four dark days, Friday when the president was assassinated, Saturday when the assassin was in being questioned, and Sunday when incredibly, it still seems almost incredible, the assassin was assassinated. And then we had the funeral of the president in, in Washington. A majority of the country was, was dealing with their own personal emotions and their reaction to this news at that time. We were working as reporters around the clock. I don't think I slept more than two or three hours of the whole four-day period there. The emotional wallop, the full emotional wallop, didn't hit me and other reporters who covered it, I think, till a week or ten days after. It was kind of a delayed emotional slam once you could think about what had happened. But while it was happening, you know, everything concentrated, cover the story, do the best you can. Try to be at or near your best because you, you know, you may not get another story like this in your whole lifetime. You know, this got, as I said, a lot of attention for you, and certainly around CBS, you you were uh, uh, transferred to the White House. I, I assume in part because of Johnson, but mostly because of what you, uh, because what you had done uh, to that point. And then you very quickly went off to London and then two years in Vietnam covering the war in off and on in, in Vietnam. I have a couple of questions about that. And I, I could talk to you for an hour about each of the things that you've done. <laughs> so I've got to be a little more disciplined here. Uh, but uh, you've, you've said that um, that was that the war in Vietnam uh, was, a, was a watershed event in terms of people's trust in government. Uh, and the relationship between the news media and government. Uh, uh, tell me why, and then I want to ask you something about your personal experience there. Well, the reason I said that, because I do believe it to be true, that we had a situation where the leadership of the country, not just the president, but the almost the entire leadership of the country, was telling the population of the United States of America that things were going pretty well in Vietnam. It was always accentuate the positive. Uh, we're making progress, so forth and so on. When the reality on the ground was never that. And that I can remember, you know, when I first went to Vietnam, uh, which was, let us remind us, it was a real green jungle hell for people who had to fight the war and for civilians who were there. But you could see that the forces led by the United States were not making the kind of progress that Washington particularly continued to say they were. And you didn't have to be an expert on military affairs or very experienced in politics of that matter, just to know that the gap between what the country's leadership was saying about what was happening on the ground in Vietnam and what in fact was happening in Vietnam. And if you're a reporter, 
you're out there every day, week in, week out, and you see that difference. That I do think that for a long time, American public opinion supported the war. And it wasn't until substantial casualties started coming back home to the kid down the street who last year was the quarterback on the football team or the point guard on the basketball team came back in a flag draped casket or came back without his arms or legs or blind. When that started happening in every neighborhood in the country, that's when public opinion began to turn against the war. Um, you know, I wonder about your own experience. You had two small children. I don't know where your family was, was living at the time. You were known to put yourself at risk quite a bit to cover that story. Did you have reservations about that? Did you have concerns about the risk you were putting yourself uh, at, given your own? Yes, I did. I, I did, David, but not enough. What had happened is my family and I, we had two uh, small children. Uh, my daughter was, uh, what, two and a half, maybe three. My son was uh, one and a half. Anyway, we were moved to London from Washington. And I went to Vietnam. Uh, I asked to go. Uh, CBS News being what it was and still is for that matter, uh, that uh, you volunteered to go. And I asked to go to Vietnam. And the answer is, while I was in Vietnam, that my family was uh, in London because we had moved there and the children were in school. And frankly, when I went, I, I never intended to stay as long as I did. Uh, I intended to be there two and a half, maybe three months. But the answer to your core question is, yes, as a, you know, a father and a husband and with two very small children, Obviously, my wife and I talked it over, but I would have to say I really wanted to go. Uh, you know, saying to myself, I, again, I think this could be one of the, the great stories of my generation. And if I'm to be the world-class journalist that I, I, I aspire to be, then I need to cover, I need to cover this story. I need to go. It's imperative for me to go. And fair to say that Jean, my wife now of 62 years, was always very supportive. And, you know, she said, look, this is, this is not something that you're ever going to be happy about if you don't go. So go, stay as little as, time as you can and come back safe. But, you know, if you're a journalist uh, of the kind that I tried to be at CBS News at that time, David, you have these conversations from time to time with your wife, particularly as the children are growing up, that the only time Jean asked me not to go was later when we went into Afghanistan. This was 1980. And at that time, Jean, my wife, and my daughter, Robin, who was becoming an adult, took me aside and said, don't go. They just said, don't go. Please don't go. Uh, because we have a bad feeling about it, and we think if you go, you may not come back this time. Uh, that was the toughest call. But you did go. I did. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. By the way... Everybody remembers Walter Cronkite going to uh, 
to Vietnam and coming back and essentially saying, this is, we are not being told the truth uh, about this. Uh, and, and the famous uh, observation, maybe it was from Lyndon Johnson, was that when you lose Cronkite, uh, you've lost the nation. That was the power of, uh, of him uh, and that position. Yes, it was. Uh, that he he went and came back, and uh, I know because I talked to him during that period that he agonized over doing that. But it was it was obvious to anybody. But that time, uh, I think that was done in nineteen sixty seven. I think eight sixty eight or nine sixty eight. Well, was it was it that late? Yeah, I'm quite sure. I think it was nineteen sixty eight. But at any rate, by that time. You know, Walter had been told by any number of his correspondents who'd gone to Vietnam, including myself, what the situation was, that the country was being lied to. But he wanted to see for himself, so he went for a few days, I think, I don't know, maybe a week, maybe as much as 10 days, and came back. But, you know, that was a different era of television. There were really only two major news networks. ABC was not yet full, so you had CBS and NBC, uh, were the only real national news networks around. And so the, the, the power, that is the power to persuade, the power to influence of an evening news anchor was pretty much confined to CBS and NBC. Yeah, I want to talk to you about it a little later about when you took that chair. Before we do, though, uh, the, another thing that you were so associated with you you uh, you came back. You covered the White House during the Johnson the end of the Johnson administration. The turmoil at the '68 convention. You took some uh, you took some incoming physically <laughs> in my hometown of Chicago. Then, uh, but you covered Richard Nixon, and you covered Richard Nixon uh, uh, the, the triumphs and then the dissolution of uh, the Nixon administration, um, and. Uh, you, you had a famous uh, uh, face-off with Nixon. I think it was at a broadcaster's convention um, where you got introduced and people uh, appreciative of your uh, coverage uh, cheered. And, uh, and Nixon said, with some edge, I guess, uh, are you, you must be running for something. Or no, he said, are you, he asked you, are you running for something? Mr. Rather, and 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 you replied, no, no, Mr. President, are you? And that it was a kind of an in-your-face moment. Uh, and I'm wondering, is that something that you regret having done? No, injecting yourself that way. No, I don't regret having done it because I've been around long enough to know that you can't play them over. This all unfolded in a matter of, of a few few seconds, and uh, you've described it. You know, reasonably well. There were a lot of boos in the audience, by the way. Some people didn't uh, didn't appreciate you as much. Didn't, <laughs> but you get the picture that the things are beginning to close in on President Nixon. And this so-called news conference was basically to be a rally in support of him. And he had already established from time to time. He'd done it with me before. He had done it with other reporters. If he thought you were, might be going to ask a tough question, he'd try to throw you off balance a little. He'd done it any number of times before then. So I recognized it for what it was. And it wasn't something I planned out. It wasn't something I thought a lot. Basically, I wanted to get on with my question. I wanted to get past this and get to the question. So it was, it was an instantaneous, spontaneous response to his trying to knock me off balance. And 
you know, for better or for worse, David, my attitude as White House correspondent, first of all, you never met anybody who had more respect for the office of the presidency of the United States. On the other hand, I never believed that the president was some descendant of a sun god. He's a citizen, another citizen who's been honored. So I wanted to get to the question. So your question was, well, did I ever regret it? No, because, you know, in the moment, you do what you think is the best thing to do, and you live with it. I recognize it became controversial, that's true. Talk to me about uh, Nixon. You know, that moment was, to most Americans who lived through that time, to that point, that was the biggest sort of constitutional crisis uh, we had seen. And it seemed unimaginable that a president could have, you know, been part of a conspiracy to cover up a break-in and could have been part of a conspiracy to subvert an election campaign in the way that Nixon did. In some ways, it seems like small potatoes now, even though it was as momentous as it was. Talk to me about Nixon and Trump. What what do you see in the two of them and the periods in which, that period and the period which we're living through now, in which we have a president who's openly challenging the, res, the results of an election against all evidence and inspiring a lot of people, at least in his in his camp among Republicans, to believe that the election was illegitimate. Well, there's certainly similarities between uh, President Trump and what we'll call the Trump years and Richard Nixon in his years. However, uh, I do think it's important, David, to emphasize that it's a different time. We're a different country. And in many ways, what has been happening with President Trump and is still happening is much more serious than what happened during the Nixon time. Now, the similarities are, uh, you, you mentioned here, among them that President Nixon you know, sought to sub- subvert the election. What Nixon wanted to do is, and this is fundamental in understanding President Nixon and his, his administration, I think, is it wasn't enough for him to defeat his political opponents. He sought to destroy his political opponents. And that's what the whole business of break-ins and what became for shorthand Watergate was about. But there was this important difference. In the end, Richard Nixon believed in the institutions that give us the check and balance on government. For example, when the Supreme Court made a decision, it, it was devastating Richard Nixon. No argument. He accepted it. And I'm not here to speak well of Richard Nixon, who hurt the country dramatically. But there's a big difference between someone who, who in the end, believes in these institutions of government and a Donald Trump who sought to, to, to really destroy those very institutions. That's a big difference. Yeah. I, uh, I want to get back to uh, where we are today, and I'm going to compress in almost criminal fashion uh, <laughs> some of the rest of your career, but that's your fault for being so productive for so long. So, uh, but, but I do want to talk about the fact that you, you did take the chair uh, from Cronkite, this, this, this sort of, uh, you know, legendary perch in broadcast journalism. Did you do it with any, I mean, obviously it was a great honor, but it seems a little bit like following Babe Ruth in right field, where no matter how <laughs> well you played, you know, the comparisons were going to be the comparisons. And it was good. And, and so did you approach it with trepidation as well? 
short answer is yes, of course I did. For one thing, a, a number of people, including a number of people who care about me and love me, virtually begged me not to take the job behind Cronkite. I had offers to do similar work at both NBC and ABC because their argument was, in fact, one of them just told me uh, flatly, he said, in Texas language, he said, Dan, the first person who comes in after Cronkite is going to get his head blown off professionally, metaphorically. There's no way you can succeed a Cronkite, a legend. So go, go someplace else, go anyplace else. And so I did have some trepidation about it. But frankly, it was such an honor and also such a challenge that I found myself saying, you don't run away from challenges. And also that this is, this is a signal honor. So do it the best you can. And even if you fail, even if you do professionally, metaphorically, get your head blown off and not succeed, you won't have slithered away from it, walked away from it. And uh, I did say to myself that there's no way that you can succeed. Uh, you, you can replace a Walter Cronkite. You can succeed a Walter Cronkite, Dan, but you can't replace him. And you had better not try to be a Walter Cronkite. You need to be your the best Dan Rather you can be. And uh, that's what I set out to do. And others, you know, others will have to judge how well or how poorly I did it. Well, you did it for 24 years, so that sort of speaks for itself. And you did it in a way that was different. You, you were more of an activist anchor. You went out, you did a lot of reporting as an anchor. You did work with 60 Minutes uh, as well. You, at times, created... Uh, News, you were you you. I think properly challenged uh, uh, vice. I guess then Vice President Bush when he was running for president on his role in the Iran Contra uh, scandal, and you covered all manner of uh, of stories. The the end of your tenure there, uh, you know. So uh, let's just stipulate you did it well, Dan. You did it very very well for a very thank long you, time. David. Uh, Thank you. The um, the the end of your uh, tenure um, is when I just want to ask you about briefly. You you uh, you 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 did a story for sixty minutes, which then had a weekday uh, a weekday show uh, in the midst of the uh, presidential race of two thousand and four, and it called into question uh, uh, George W. Bush's service in the Texas National Guard. Um, there were there were facts that were disputed. CBS ultimately backed off the story. It was quite controversial coming in September of a very competitive uh, presidential race, and it put a, nor a number of your staff had to leave, and ultimately you left uh, as well. Um, wasn't I'm sure what you imagined as the end of your tenure in that exalted chair? How did you deal with that personally? Well, probably not very well. That I never believed in, until the very end, I believed that I would stay at CBS News. And without going into the details of it, we, we reported a true story. We reported a story that was true. It was attacked by, over the process by which we got to the truth. And we had made some mistakes. But in answer to your question, that I realized very late that the corporate ownership, Viacom Corporation, a man named Sumner Redstone, that CBS 
and Viacom intended not only to let me go, but they sought to destroy my reputation for their own benefit. And that's not just a whine of somebody who lost his job. It's a fact that it, it was came as somewhat of a shock to me. And I did have to, when I left CBS, I did have to say to myself, well, what now? And there were plenty of people who said, you know, you're finished, you're through, you've had it, and you, you had a good run. You made some mistakes at the end, so now it's over. Uh, frankly, I didn't know whether that was true or not, but I said to myself that, you know, I love, I love working, I love this work, I'm gonna, I gotta find something to do. And fortunately, David, I can say that through God's grace and a lot of luck, that I, that's been, I left in what 2006, here we are in 2020, and uh, I'm still able to do this work. And in many ways, it's the best part of my professional career. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you, you went on to, uh, to work with uh, Mark Cuban's cable network. You've, you've done all manner of podcasts. You're a social media uh, phenom, which is, you know, I'm a couple of years younger than you, but it's tough to be a social media phenom when you didn't grow up in the social media. Generation, but Amen to that, brother. You, you, you've managed to do that. I, I want to ask you just from the person now looking back at these uh, seven decades, it is a different world now. And, and we're in a world in which facts and truth uh, that you know, we we were uh, we were much more certain in uh, about in, in the past are now in dispute. True facts and truth have become relative. That's part of Trump. That's part of Trump Trumpism. But it's also part of the age of siloed media where you're affirmed but not necessarily informed. How how does how do journalists deal with that uh, with that challenge that? Uh, you operate by a certain set of standards. You go out, you try to assert, uh, ascertain what the fact is, you report it. Um, that isn't, there's a whole group of people in this country, a, a whole lot of millions and millions of Americans who don't necessarily accept that. Well, that is true. And to answer your question, how have journalists handled it? Speaking for myself, but I think it's true in general. I think journalists and the profession of journalism we were knocked off balance by this when it first began to really take root. Look, this, there's been a strain of this for as long as anybody of us can remember, but it really has begun to take root in the internet age and accelerated during the, the age of Trump, the era of Trump. So journalists, as again, including myself, were thrown off balance. I think in the last two or three years, I see signs that journalists and journalism in general are beginning to sort of study ourselves once again and, and deal with the fact that it is a fact that the world has changed tremendously, the whole world of how information is disseminated. Even the definition of who is and who isn't a journalist is an active question these days. But in the main, and certainly it's hard to generalize, but in the main, David, I think the attitude of most journalists who are the worthy of the name is that we have to be careful and, and not lose sight of, of the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are why are, we, we, you know, why are we doing this? Well, we're doing it because we want to be truth seekers. And our job is to get, us, get to the truth or as close to the truth as we can, as is humanly possible, and to tell it. 
and that the best thing we can do is just do our damn job, do the job, and hope that enough of the public comes to understand what it is we're trying to do. But I, I recognize that's not a very strong answer because no, it's I, still... I'm not sure there's an easy answer. There is no easy answer. That's, that's the point. As, as we talk here today, you know, there are tens of millions of Americans who have been convinced that Joe Biden's election is illegitimate. And, and they're going to believe that going forward. And how that unfolds worries me a good deal. Yeah. But, but that's just one example of what you were talking about. It is a very, very pregnant example of this and, and really concerning for our democracy. You know, news, the news media that you grew up in, I grew up in a little later, it's both a business and a trust. And there's a tension between the two because there is that mission that you just described uh, and that you've committed your life to. And then there is the need to be a going concern. And, and, and so the competition now, there aren't just two or three networks. There's vast competition for eyeballs. There's vast competition for now clicks. Uh, how do you balance that, that the, 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 the trust elements of news and the business elements of news? And how much, how well has the news media, including your old uh, network, but how, how well has the news media balanced the two in this very ferocious arena? I'm afraid not very well, David. I'm afraid the answer, we haven't done very well in passing. And you, you've laid out the dilemma quite well. And the reason I say not very well, no excuses that we're all responsible for what we do. But the business model that financed journalism as we knew it, journalism was fiercely independent when necessary and did deep digging investigative reporting and first-class international reporting. That business model with the advent of the internet pretty much disappeared. And with a few notable exceptions, nobody has figured out a new business model that will emphasize journalism of trust, that the pressure is, even at the best of places, the pressure is on to get those clicks, to get yeah. those hits, right, and to get the ratings and to get the demographics. And therefore, so much of news today, first of all, it concentrates, it looks for the sensational, it looks for the big breaking news at the expense of almost everything else. And many news programs that are advertised as, quote, news programs, are in fact entertainment programs and designed to be entertainment programs. And we could spend the rest of the day talking about this, and I know you want to move on, but it answers your question that, you know, journalism and journalists are we're still struggling with how to, how to make that balance between the business side and the trust that mm -hmm. we engender. We're still trying to get that balance. And I would, I'm fearful it's not going to get any easier. It's already very difficult. But looking ahead, it's not going to get any easier. Yeah, and I, and, and I know you've spoken about, and I've spoken about, the, um, uh, where we see a real crisis is in local news. I started at the Chicago Tribune. You started at the Houston Chronicle. Uh, you know, and what we've seen is just the, 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 the deterioration of local news because the advertising base that used to come with classified ads and so it's not there anymore, and you've seen one after another local news organization collapse. That is a big crisis uh, for us. My crisis right now is that I've 
I'm too interested in Dan Rather and I have too many <laughs> questions. But uh, I, I just want to leave with this one. You are uh, entering, uh, you, you just had your 89th birthday, headed toward your 90th year. You're still active, still working, still out there offering your, your, your opinion. You, you wrote, uh, by the way, uh, re- relatively recently, I think it's out in uh, paperback now, a, uh, a wonderful book called What Unites Us. And I, I, I really recommend it to everyone, particularly at a time when we're so focused on what divides us. It is really a, a wonderful work. Uh, my question to you is, do you ever say, you know what, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, pro- I'm way closer to the end than the beginning. Maybe I should do one less podcast. Maybe I should do, write one last piece and spend more time with family and friends and so on. Or is, are you on a mission that just never ends here? I think I'm on a mission that never ends, if you want to put it that way. That, look, you know, I have a lot of faults and have made a lot of mistakes. But by this time, I've learned a good deal about what I am, who I am, and who I'm not. First of all, not only do I enjoy this work, I do have a passion for doing the work. I love doing the work. Uh, I'd like to think I'm at least reasonably good at it. And as long as I have my health, that I want to be doing this. I, I remember, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was a, a fairly old priest. I, I'm not Catholic, I'm Protestant, but it was a priest. And he, he was talking to some older women. And he said to them, you know, keep smiling, keep trying, keep fighting. You're going to be dead a long time. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that sort of stuck with me. So in answer to the question, as long as I have my health and somebody will uh, help me do it, I want, I want to be doing this work. I, I think it's work that matters. I, 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 look, I have no illusions, David. I'm on the backside now. That's the circle of life. I'm, I'm working on the periphery. But I enjoy it as much as anything I've ever done. And maybe I'm kidding myself. We all live with our illusions. I think, yeah, on my better days, maybe it does still count for something. Yeah. So uh, the answer is, uh, as long as I have my health, I intend to keep on doing it. Well, listen, it's an honor to be with you. Uh, you, Dan, rather are a um, an iconic figure in American history, uh, which is pretty good for a kid who started off in uh, Wharton, Texas. Uh, with uncertain prospects, and you've made your mark in broadcast history and in American history, and very few people can say that. So again, honored to be with you. Appreciate your time. And uh, I personally am grateful that you're on a mission that never ends because I am a consumer of your work, and happily so. Great to be with you. David, it's great to be with you. Thank you very much. I wish you good luck and Godspeed, my friend. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 